Chapter 9 On the morrow, between nine and half-past, they were journeying back to Christminster, the only two occupants of a compartment in a third-class railway carriage. Having, like Jude, made a rather hasty toilet to catch the train, Arabella looked a little frowsy, and her face was very far from possessing the animation which had characterized it at the bar the night before. When they came out of the station, she found that she still had half an hour to spare before she was due at the bar. They walked in silence a little way out of the town in the direction of Alfredston. Jude looked up the far highway. "'Ah, poor feeble me,' he murmured at last. "'What?' said she. "'This is the very road which I came into Christminster years ago, full of plans.' "'Well, whatever the road is, I think my time is nearly up, "'and I have to be at the bar by eleven o'clock, and, as I said, "'I shan't ask for the day to go with you to see your aunt, "'so perhaps we had better part here. "'I'd sooner not walk up Chief Street with you, "'since we've come to no conclusion at all.' "'Very well.' But you had said when we were getting up this morning that you had something you wished to tell me before I left? So I had. Two things, one in particular. But you wouldn't promise to keep it a secret. I'll tell you now if you promise. As an honest woman, I wish you to know it. It was what I began telling you in the night about that gentleman who managed the Sydney Hotel. Arabella spoke somewhat hurriedly for her. You'll keep it close? Yes, yes, I promise said Jude impatiently. Of course I don't want to reveal your secrets. Whenever I met him out for a walk, he used to say that he was very much taken with my looks, and he kept pressing me to marry him. I never thought of coming back to England, and being out there in Australia with no home of my own after leaving my father, I at last agreed and did. What, marry him? Yes. Legally? Regularly? In a church? Yes, and I lived with him till shortly before I left. It was stupid, I know, but I did. There, now I've told you. Don't round upon me. He talks of coming back to England, poor old chap, but if he does, he won't be likely to find me. Jude stood pale and fixed. Why the devil didn't you tell me last night? He said. Well, I didn't. Won't you make it up with me then? So... In talking to your husband, to the bar gentleman, you meant him, of course, not me. Of course. Come, don't fuss about it. I have nothing more to say, replied Jude. I have nothing at all to say about the crime you've confessed to. Crime? Phew. They don't think much as that over there. Lots of them do it. Well, if you take it like that, I shall go back to him. He was very fond of me, and we lived honorably enough, and as respectable as any married couple in the colony. How did I know where you were? I won't go blaming you. I could say a good deal, but perhaps it would be misplaced. What do you wish me to do? Nothing. There was one thing more I wanted to tell you, but I fancy we've seen enough of one another for the present. I shall think over what you said about your circumstances and let you know. Thus they parted. Jude watched her disappear in the direction of the hotel, and entered the railway station close by. Finding that it wanted three-quarters of an hour of the time at which he could get a train back to Alfredston, he strolled mechanically into the city as far as to the Four Corners, 
where he stood as he had so often stood before, and surveyed Chief Street stretching ahead, with its college after college and picturesqueness unrivaled except by such continental vistas as the Street of Palaces in Genoa, the lines of the buildings being as distinct in the morning air as an architectural drawing. But Jude was far from seeing or criticizing these things. They were hidden by an indescribable consciousness of Arabella's midnight contiguity, a sense of degradation at his revived experiences with her, of her appearance as she lay asleep at dawn, which set upon his motionless face a look of one accursed. If he could only have felt resentment towards her, he would have been less unhappy. But he pitied while he condemned her. Jude turned and retraced his steps. Drawing again towards the station, he started at hearing his name pronounced, less at the same than at the voice. To his great surprise, no other than Sue stood like a vision before him. Her look bodeful and anxious as in a dream, her little mouth nervous, and her strained eyes speaking reproachful inquiry. "'Oh, Jude, I was so glad to meet you like this,' she said in quick, uneven accents, not far from a sob. Then she flushed as she observed his thought that they had not met since her marriage. They looked away from each other to hide their emotions, took each other's hand without further speech, and went on together a while, till she glanced at him with fury, furative solitude. I arrived at Alfred's station last night as you asked me to, and there was nobody to meet me. But I reached Mary Green alone, and they told me Aunt was a trifle better. I sat up with her as you did not come all night. I was frightened about you. I thought that perhaps when you found yourself back in the old city you were upset at, at thinking I was married and not there as I used to be, and that you had saw nobody to speak to, so you had tried to drown your gloom, as you did at that former time when you were disappointed about entering as a student, and had forgotten your promise to me that you would never again. And this, I thought, was why you hadn't come to meet me. And you came to hunt me up and deliver me, like a good angel. I thought I would come by in the morning train and try to find you, in case, in case. I did think of my promise to you, dear, continually. I shall never break out again as I did, I am sure. I may have been doing nothing better, but I was not doing that. I loathe the thought of it. I am glad your staying had nothing to do with that, but, she said, the faintest pout entering into her tone, you didn't come back last night and meet me as you engaged to. I didn't. I'm sorry to say, I had an appointment at nine o'clock, too late for me to catch the train that would have met yours or to get home at all. Looking at his loved one as she appeared to him now, in his tender thought the sweetest and most disinterested comrade that he had ever had, living largely in vivid imaginings, so ethereal, a creature that her spirit could be seen trembling through her limbs, he felt heartily ashamed of his earthliness in spending the hours he had spent in Arabella's company. There was something rude and immoral in thrusting these recent facts of his life upon the mind of one who, to him, was so incarnate as to seem at times impossible as a human wife to any average man. And yet she was Philotston's. How she had become such, how she lived as such, passed his comprehension as he regarded her day to day. "'You'll go back with me?' he said. 
there's a train just now. I wonder how my aunt is by this time. And so, Sue, you really came on my account all this way? What an early time you must have started, poor thing. Yes. Sitting up watching alone made me all nerves for you, and instead of going to bed when it got light, I started. And now you won't frighten me like this again about your morals for nothing? He was not so sure that she had been frightened about his morals for nothing. He released her hand till they had entered the train. It seemed the same carriage. He had lately got out with another, where they sat down side by side, Sue between him and the window. He regarded the delicate lines of her profile and the small, tight, apple-like convexities of her bodice, so different from Arabella's amplitudes. Though she knew he was looking at her, she did not dare turn to him, but kept her eyes forward, as if afraid that by meeting his own, some troublous discussion would be initiated. Sue, you are married now, you know, like me, and yet we have been in such a hurry that we have not said a word about it. There's no necessity, she quickly returned. Oh, well, perhaps not, but I wish, Jude, don't talk about me. I wish you wouldn't she entreated. It distresses me, rather. Forgive my saying it. Where did you stay last night? She had asked the question in perfect innocence to change the topic. He knew that, and said merely, at an inn, though it would have been a relief to tell her of his meeting with an unexpected one. But the latter's final announcement of her marriage in Australia bewildered, bewildered him, lest what he might say should do his ignorant wife an injury. Their talk proceeded, but awkwardly, till they reached Alfredston. That Sue was not as she had been, but was labelled Philotston, paralysed Jude whenever he wanted to commune with her as an individual. Yet she seemed unaltered, he could not say why. There remained the five-mile extra journey into the country, which it was just an easy walk to drive, the greater part of it being uphill. Jude had never before in his life gone that road with Sue, though he had with another. It was now as if he carried a bright light which temporarily banished the shady associations of the earlier time. Sue talked, but Jude noticed that she still kept the conversation from herself. At length, he inquired if her husband were well. Oh, yes, she said. He is obliged to be in school all the day, or he would have come with me. He is so good and kind that to accompany me he would have dismissed the school for once, even against his principles, for he is strongly enough opposed to giving casual holidays. Only I wouldn't let him. I felt it would be better to come alone. Aunt Drusilla, I knew, was so very eccentric, and his being almost a stranger to her now would have made it irksome to both, since it turns out that she is hardly conscious I am glad I did not ask him. Jude had walked moodily while this praise of Philotston was being expressed. "'Mr. Philotston obliges you in everything as he ought,' he said. "'Of course. You ought to be a happy wife. And of course I am. "'Bride, I might have almost said, as yet. It is not so many weeks since I gave you to him, and yes, I know, I know.' There was something in her face which belied her late assuring words, so strictly proper and so lifelessly spoken that they might have been taken from a list of model speeches in The Wife's Guide to Conduct. Jude knew the quality of every vibration in Sue's voice, could read every symptom of her mental condition, and he was convinced that she was unhappy, 
although she had not been a month married. But her rushing away thus from home to see the last of a relative whom she had hardly known in her life proved nothing, for Sue naturally did such things as those. "'Well, you have my good wishes now as always, Mrs. Philotston,' she reproached him by a glance. "'No, you are not Mrs. Philotston,' murmured Jude. "'You are dear, free, sued Bridehead, only you don't know it. Wifedom has not yet squashed up and digested you and its vast maw as an atom which has no further individuality.' Sue put on a look of being offended till she answered, "'Nor has husbandum you, so far as I can see.' "'But it has,' he said, shaking his head sadly." When they reached the lone cottage under the firs between the brown house and Mary Green, in which Jude and Arabella had lived and quarreled, he turned to look at it. A squalid family lived there now. He could not help saying to Sue, "'That's the house my wife and I occupied the whole of the time we lived together. I brought her home to that house.' She looked at it. "'That to you was what the schoolhouse at Shaston is to me.' "'Yes, but I was not very happy there, as you are in yours.' Sue closed her lips in retortive silence, and they walked some way till she glanced at him to see how he was taking it. "'Of course, I may have exaggerated your happiness. One never knows,' he continued blandly. "'Don't think that, Jude, for a moment, even though you may have said it to sting me. He's as good to me as a man can be, and gives me perfect liberty.' which an elderly husband's don't do in general. If you think I'm not happy because he's too old for me, you are wrong. I don't think anything against him to you, dear. And you won't say things to distress me, will you? I will not. He said no more, but he knew that, from some cause or other, in taking Philotston as a husband, Sue felt that she had done what she ought not to have done. They plunged into the concave field on the other side, which rose the village, the field wherein Jude had received a thrashing from the farmer many years earlier. On ascending to the village and approaching the house, they found Mrs. Edlin standing at the door, who, at sight of them, lifted her hands depreciatingly. "'She's downstairs, if you'll believe me,' cried the widow. "'Out of bed she got, and nothing could turn her. What will come I do not know.' On entering there, indeed, by the fireplace, sat the old woman, wrapped in blankets, and turning upon them a countenance like that of Sebastiano's Lazarus. They must have looked their amazement, for she said in a hollow voice, "'Ah, scared ye, haven't I? I wasn't going to bide up there no longer to please nobody. Tis more than flesh and blood can bear to be ordered to do this and that by a feller that don't know half as well as you do yourself. Ah, you'll rue this marrying as well as he, she added, turning to Sue. All our family do, and nearly all everybody else's. You should have done as I did, you simpleton, and Philotston the schoolmaster of all men. What made he marry him? What makes most women marry, aunt? Ah, you mean to say you loved the man? I don't mean to say anything definite. Do you love him? Don't ask me, aunt. I can mind the man very well, very civil, honorable. L but, Lord, 
I don't want to wound your feelings, but there must be certain men here and there that no woman of any niceness can stomach. I should have said he was one. I don't say so now, since you must have known better than I. But that's what I should have said. She jumped up and went out. Sue followed her and found her crying in the outhouse. Don't cry, dear, said Jude in distress. She means well, but is very crusty and queer now, you know. Oh, no, it isn't that, said Sue, trying to dry her eyes. I don't mind her roughness one bit. What is it, then? It is that what she says is, is true. God, what, you don't like him? asked Jude. I don't mean that, she said hastily. That I ought, perhaps I ought not to have married. He wondered if she had really been going to say that at first. They went back, and the subject was smoothed over, and her aunt took rather kindly to Sue, telling her that not many young women newly married would have come so far to see a sick old crone like her. In the afternoon, Sue prepared to depart, Jude hiring a neighbor to drive her to Alfredston. "'I'll go with you to the station if you like,' he said. She would not let him. The man came round with the trap, and Jude helped her into it, perhaps with unnecessary attention, for she looked at him prohibitively. "'I suppose I may come to see you some day when I am back again at Melchester?' he half-crossly observed. She bent down and said softly, "'No, dear, you are not to come yet. I don't think you are in a good mood.' "'Very well.' said Jude. Goodbye. Goodbye. She waved her hand and was gone. She's right. I won't go, he murmured. He passed the evening and following days in mortifying by every possible means his wish to see her, nearly starving himself in attempts to extinguish by fasting his passionate tendency to love her. He read sermons on discipline and hunted up passages in church history that treated of the aesthetics of the second century. Before he had returned from Mary Green to Melchester, there arrived a letter from Arabella. The sight of it revived a stronger feeling of self-condemnation for his brief return to her society than for his attachment to Sue. The letter, he perceived, bore a London postmark instead of the Christminster one, Arabella informed him that a few days after their parting in the morning at Christminster, she had been surprised by an affectionate letter from her Australian husband, formerly manager of the hotel in Sydney. He had come to England on purpose to find her, and had taken a free, fully licensed public in Lambeth, where he wished her to join him in conducting the business, which was likely to, bear, to be a very thriving one, the house being situated in an excellent densely populated, gin-drinking neighborhood, and already doing a trade of two hundred pounds a month, which could be easily doubled. As he had said that, he loved her very much still, and implored her to tell him where she was, and as they had only parted in a slight tiff, and as her engagement in Christminster was only temporary, she had just gone to join him as he, as he urged. She could not help feeling that she belonged to him more than to Jude, since she had properly married him, and had lived with him much longer than with her first husband. 
In thus wishing Jude goodbye, she bore him no ill will, and trusted he would not turn upon her, a weak woman, and inform against her, and bring her to ruin now that she had a chance of improving her circumstances and leading a genteel life. Chapter 10 Jude returned to Melchester, which had the questionable recommendation of being only a dozen and a half miles from his Sue's now permanent residence. At first he felt that this nearness was a distinct reason for not going southward at all. But Christminster was too sad a place to bear, while the proximity of Shaston to Melchester might afford him the glory of worsting the enemy in close engagement such as was deliberately sought by priests and virgins from the early church, who, disdaining an ignominious flight from temptation, became even chamber partners with impunity. Jude did not pause to remember that, in the laconic words of the historian, insulted nature sometimes vindicated her rights in such circumstances. He now returned with feverish, desperation to his study for the priesthood, in the recognition that the single-mindedness of his aims and his fidelity to the cause had been more than questionable of late. His passion for Sue troubled his soul, yet his lawful abandonment to the society of Arabella for twelve hours seemed instinctively a worse thing, even though she had not told him of her Sydney husband till afterwards. He had, he verily believed, overcome all tendency to fly to liquor, which indeed he had never done from taste, but merely as an escape from intolerable misery of mind. Yet he perceived with despondency that, taken all round, he was a man of too many passions to make a good clergyman. The utmost he could hope for was that of a life of constant internal warfare between flesh and spirit, the former might not always be victorious. As a hobby, auxiliary to his readings in divinity, he developed his slight skill in church music and thorough bass till he could join part in singing from notation with some accuracy. A mile or two from Melchester, there was a restored village church to which Jude had originally gone to fix the new columns and capitals. By this means, he had become acquainted with the organist, and the ultimate result was that he joined the choir as a bass voice. He walked out to this parish twice every Sunday and sometimes in the week. One evening about Easter the choir met for practice, and a new hymn, which Jude had heard of as being by a Wessex composer, was to be tried out and prepared for the following week. It turned out to be a strangely emotional composition as they all sang it over and over again, its harmonies grew upon Jude and moved him exceedingly. When they had finished, he went round to the organist to make inquiries. The score was in the manuscript, the name of the composer being at the head, together with the title of the hymn, The Foot of the Cross. "'Yes,' said the organist, "'he is a local man. He is a professional musician at Kennetbridge, between here and Christminster. The vicar knows him.' He was brought up and educated in Christminster traditions, which accounts for the quality of the piece. I think he plays the large church there, and had a surplused choir. He comes to Melchester sometimes, and once tried to get the cathedral organ when the post was vacant, 
The hymn is getting about everywhere this Easter. As he walked, humming the air on his way home, Jude fell to musing on its composer and the reasons why he composed it. What a man of sympathies he must be, perplexed and harassed as he himself was about Sue and Arabella, and troubled as was his conscience by the complication of his position. How he would like to know that man! He of all men would understand my difficulties, said the impulsive Jude. If there was any person in the world to choose as a confidant, this composer would be the one, for he must have suffered and throbbed and yearned. In brief, ill as he could afford the time and money for the journey, Folly resolved, like the child that he was, to go to Kennetbridge the very next Sunday. He duly started early in the morning, for it was only by a series of crooked railways that he could get to the town. About midday, he reached it and crossed the bridge into the quaint old borough. He inquired for the house of the composer. They told him it was a red brick building some little way further on. Also, that the gentleman himself had just passed along the street not five minutes before. "'Which way?' asked Jude, without clarity. "'Straight along homeward from the church.' Jude hastened on and soon had the pleasure of observing a man in black coat and a black slouched felt hat yet no considerable distance ahead. Stretching out his legs yet more widely, he stalked after. A hungry soul in pursuit of a full soul, he said. I must speak to that man. He could not, however, overtake the musician before he had entered his own house, and then arose the question if this were an expedient time to call. Whether or not he decided to do so there and then, now that he had got here, the distance home being too great for him to wait till late in the afternoon. This man of soul would understand scant ceremony, and might be quite a perfect adviser in a case in which an earthly and illegitimate passion had cunningly obtained entrance into his heart through the opening afforded for religion. Jude rang the bell and was admitted. The musician came to him in a moment, and being respectably dressed, good-looking, and frank in manner, Jude obtained a favorable reception. He was nevertheless conscious that there would be a certain awkwardness in explaining his errand. "'I have been singing in the choir of a little church near Melchester,' he said, "'and we have this week practiced the foot of the cross, which I understand, sir, that you composed.' I did, a year or so ago. I I like it. I think it is supremely beautiful. Ah, well, other people have said so, too. Yes, there's money in it, if I could only see about getting it published. I have the other compositions to go with it, too. I wish I could bring them out, for I haven't made a five-pound note on any one of them yet. These publishing people... They want the copyright of an obscure composer's work, such as, such as mine is, for almost less than I should have to pay a person for making a fair manuscript copy of the score. The one you speak of, I have lent to various friends about here in Melchester, and so it has got on to be sung a little. But music is a poor staff to lean on. I am giving it up entirely. You must go into trade if you want to make money nowadays. The wine business is what I am thinking of, yet 
This is my forthcoming list. It is not issued yet, but you can take one. He handed Jude an advertisement list of several pages in booklet shape, ornamentally margined with a red line, in which were set forth the various clarets, champagnes, ports, sherries, and other wines with which he purported to initiate his new adventure. It took Jude more than by surprise that the man with the soul was thus and thus, and he felt that he could not open up his confidences. They talked a little longer, but constrainedly, for when the musician found that Jude was a poor man, his manner changed from what it had been, while Jude's appearance and address deceived him as to his position and pursuits. Jude stammered out something about his feelings in wishing to congratulate the author on such exalted composition, and took an embarrassed leave. All the way home, by the slow Sunday train, sitting in the fireless waiting rooms on this cold spring day, he was depressed enough at his simplicity in taking such a journey. But no sooner did he reach his Melchester lodging than he found awaiting for him a letter which had arrived that morning a few minutes after he had left the house. It was a contrite little note from Sue, in which she said, with sweet humility, that she felt she had been horrid in telling him he was not to come see her, that she despised herself for having been so conventional, and that he was to be sure to come by the 11.45 train that very Sunday and have dinner with them at half-past one. Jude almost tore at his hair at having missed this letter till it was too late to act upon its contents. But he had chastened himself considerably of late, and at least his chimerical expedition to Kennetbridge really did seem to have been another special intervention of Providence to keep him away from temptation. But a growing impatience of faith, which he had noticed in himself more than once of late, made him pass over in ridicule the idea that God sent people on fool's errands. He longed to see her, he was angry at having missed her, and he wrote instantly, telling her what had happened, and saying he had not enough patience to wait till the following Sunday, but would come any day in the week that she liked to name. Since he wrote a little over-ardently, Sue, as her manner was, delayed her reply till Thursday before Good Friday, when she said he might come that afternoon if he wished, this being the earliest day on which she could welcome him, for she was now assistant teacher in her husband's school. Jude therefore got leave from the cathedral works at the trifling expense of stoppage of pay, and went. <laughs> 